Didn't I just do this? There's a lot of preaching and praying going on up here today. Uh, you know, here's the irony. We think that missions is just a liability. It's something that we give out, give out, give out. But missions is really something that we just receive, receive, receive more from. Real live example. Uh, you know last week we sent Evan and Laura Lynn. Evan has been serving as our worship leader now for six years, sent them to seminary. And it was no surprise. We knew it was coming. So we have been trying to prepare for this vacuum, this absence that we knew we were going to experience in the interim uh, before we find another worship leader. And we felt like we had folk in house that could fill that gap. And boy, didn't they do a good job this morning. Huh? So, yeah, we talked to Jack. We felt like Jack might be the, the guy to kind of lead our worship team, and you know Jack was, well, I don't know, Jack's kind of quiet and reserved and shy and all that, and you know, kind of wanted to, but was scared to, and didn't know if he could, and lo and behold, we get to the mission field, and the very first night we're there, we're in a in our most established Quilombola church, and while the service is going on, right in the middle of it, uh, the girl that was leading the service uh, up to that point said, now... Uh, we're going to hear a song from the American team. <laughs> well, that excludes everybody but Pastor Richie. They know I don't sing. I preach. All right? <laughs> and so all that team's looking around saying, what are we going to do now? Jack looks at me and says, what are we going to do? I said, you going to get your white honey up there and sing one, Jane? <laughs> so they did. But you know what that did? I just saw Jack on that trip kind of emerge as the leader. So you sent away little shy and reserved Jack, but you received back confident Jack, who is not only our worship leader, but house comedian, right? <laughs> so that's what missions does. Uh, we always get more than we give somehow or another. That's how God does it. Jack, thank you, man. Uh, we appreciate you. All right. Well, you know, uh, Dr. John said today's kind of our mission emphasis it is our goal as a local church to be a sending church. And not just be a sending church, but a sending church that is composed of missional believers. Now, I took the entire Sunday school hour to unpack that. So as Dr. John said, that'll be, that'll be loaded and available for you to hear if you'd like to explore that a little bit more. But today, it is my privilege to preach a subject that's very dear to my heart. Something that has changed my life, and that is personal involvement in the great commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if a fellow was going to have a one-time shot at a mission message to his church, where would you think he would go in the Bible? Probably to the New Testament, right? Land around one of those great commission passages that are recorded in all the Gospels or in Acts, which is our standard for our uh, mission philosophy and strategy today. But no, I want us to land in the Old Testament. So find your place with me in the book of Psalms and let's look at Psalm 96. So here we go. And by the way, uh, missions is not just something that emerged in the New Testament era. It's not just an addendum to the gospel. It's not a Johnny-come-lately Missions has always been around and it's well established in the Old Testament. 
And missions exist, as John Piper says, because God exists. God by nature is missionary. And you and I, as being made in the image of God, if we are not by nature missionary, then we somehow or another distort the image of God that He's placed within us. So there's more to being ascending church. There's more to being on mission. There's more to being missionary than simply giving and going. It really is deep-seated in theology and it's reflected in anthropology And if we're not missionary at our heart, then we distort the image of God that is within us. So let's look at Psalm 96 together for a few minutes this morning. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 96, Sing to Yahweh. You know that anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, D, it is the covenant name for God known as the Tetragrammaton in Greek because it's just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. And it really is the covenant name of God revealed to God by Moses and expresses this idea of the covenant-keeping God. So when you hear me say Yahweh rather than pronouncing it Lord, it's because I had a Hebrew professor in seminary that if we said Lord rather than Yahweh, He would literally spank our hands with a ruler. So uh, even though he's dead and gone now, I don't want to get my hands spanked. I'm afraid he might do it. So just know that I'm not speaking in tongues. It's just ingrained in me to say the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. So here we go. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples, ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship Yahweh in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh. For He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and His peoples in His faithfulness. Well, before we dive into Psalm number 96, I think there are some basic flyover observations we need to make about this particular psalm in order to set it in context. I mean, the first thing we need to see about this psalm is it is missionary in nature. Not only is it missionary, but it was a missionary song that was probably used in the worship service of ancient Israel in order to remind them of their missionary privilege and responsibility as it flows to them 
from the identity of God Himself and vis-a-vis their identity by being the people of Yahweh. So it is an ancient hymn, if you will. Now, let me show you how it flows out, and once I point this out, you'll say, yep, this is a hymn just after the style of our Baptist hymnal or Broadman hymn book. So check out, it really has three stanzas. Verses 1 through 6 is the first stanza. Verses 7 through 10 are the second stanza. And then verses 11, 12, and 13 compose the final stanza. Now notice at the opening of each of these stanzas there is a threefold refrain. Notice in verses 1 and 2 we have sing, sing, sing. And then in verses 7 and 8 we have ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And then in verses 11 through 13 we have let, let, let. So this threefold refrain is interestingly composed of two different verb tenses. Notice the first two stanzas, sing, 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 is an imperative. It's a command that's given to the people of Yahweh. Sing, sing, sing. And then the second stanza starts out, ascribe, 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 or some of your translations may say give, give, give. And again, that's an imperative. It's not an option. It's a commandment. It's something we must do. But now look at the last stanza. The last stanza gives us uh, um, three verbs again, and they are more subjunctive. They are not imperative. It changes to let, 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 which expresses possible action rather than commanded action. Now here's the grammatical significance of that as this hymn is structured. What the author seems to be saying is that if we carry out the first two stanzas, the commands, the imperatives of sing, 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 and give, give, give within their context, then what will naturally follow is what is described in verses 11 through 13. So now, let's check this out and set it within the wraps of this missional hymn that was sung in the worship services of ancient Israel. And I want to answer this question because I think this psalm gives us the answer to this burning question of why is grace ascending church? I mean, really. You hear us talk about that all the time. Saying that we are a sending model church. It's a new model church. I mean, you can tell when you come here for the very first time that, that there's something a little bit different about grace than a traditionally structured and model church, and that's on purpose. It's not an accident. We want to be a sending church, again, that's composed of missional believers. Now, why is it that we want to be a sending church? There's a hundred reasons. Mainly, we want to be involved in something that has eternal significance and meaning that outlasts life itself. But I think beyond that, this psalm gives us some good reasons why grace wants to be and is becoming a sending church. Let's look at them as we see them expressed in this psalm. I think the first thing that we can say is that Grace wants to be a mission church because the focus of missions is Godward. 
The focus of missions is Godward. Now, that should be striking to you because all of our lives we have been taught that missions is about people. And missions is about lost people. But more than about lost people, it's about unreached people. So missions has this very anthropological focus in most of our minds. But I want to tell you that the Bible says that missions is not primarily about man. Missions is primarily about God. Now I want you to see this. You know, I I believe in writing and underlining in your book. So I, I want you to take your pen and pencil and just for a minute, I want you to just peruse this psalm And I want you to underline every time you see the word Lord, that is Yahweh, or every time there is a personal pronoun that refers to Him, such as His, or He, or Him. And when you do that, you're going to find that God is the focus and subject of this missional hymn. Now, are you seeing the predominant and repetitive use of the divine name and the divine pronoun in this missionary hymn, you'll find when you get through it and when you finish it tonight underlining it that it's used just short of 30 times in 13 verses. Now what does that tell us? Here's what it tells us. It tells us that God is the focus of missions. He's the focus. You see, missions is not primarily anthropological, it's theological. Missions exist because God exists. And if you and I are not missional, if you and I are not missionary, then what we're saying about our God is that He's not good enough to be worshipped by anyone else but us. We're just going to keep Him right here in this small group. But listen... Our God is so great. Did you see what this this psalm said, the psalmist? He said, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So why is it necessary for God's people to be on mission? Why is it necessary for Grace Church to be ascending church? It's necessary because God is great and greatly to be praised. And for us not to be missionaries saying, you know, our, our God's really not that great. You Buddhists can just keep on worshiping Buddha. You uh, 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 Muslims can just keep on worshiping Allah. You Hindus can just keep on worshiping one of your 10,000 gods. No. You see, that is a sin against God Almighty because our God is great and greatly to be praised. He's worthy of the worship of every person who has drawn a breath upon this planet, who is drawing breath, and who will draw a breath. Hey, how worthy is your God of worship? So you see, here's what we're doing in missions. In missions, we're saying our God's so good until He's worthy of a global choir worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And here's what missions does. Missions is little more than us going and collecting more worshipers unto this great God who's worthy of our worship. So requirement number one for being a missionary is being a worshiper. Hey, if you're not a worshiper of God, then you're going to have little interest in being, being a missionary or being a missional believer. If you're not a worshiper in spirit and in truth, it's because you haven't seen the grandeur of God Almighty. 
When you see the goodness of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the splendor of God, friend, you become infatuated with God Himself and you become a worshiper. So requirement number one for being a sending church is that sending church must be filled with people who are worshipers of God, who are absolutely awestruck with the grandeur and greatness of our God who's greatly to be praised. And friend, because He's so great, it compels us to go and tell those who've never heard so that they can become worshipers of this God who's worthy of their worship. I'm telling you, missions is primarily focused on God. The focus of missions is Godward. Hey, when we get to unreached peoples, here's what we do. God is the hero of our Bible stories. He is the Lord of our preaching. He is the focus of our mission. He is the subject of our work. It's all about God. And notice what this writer says to do. Here's what he says to do. He says our missionary responsibility is to sing unto Him, to tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among the peoples. You see, God is the subject. We don't get to the mission field and, and start teaching and preaching pop psychology. We get over there and we start unpacking biblical theology about the greatness and goodness of God and that draws people to Himself like a magnet. Man, I can't tell you how many times we've just went into an unreached village with nothing except a guitar and a mango tree and sit down under that mango tree and just a group of missionaries start to worship God and it's amazing how many folk will be attracted. And we end up with a congregation in order to start explaining why we're here, who we are, and how great our God is. And I'll never forget one of our... Heather and I were just rookie missionaries and we set out to go to this village that we were sure that there had never been an outsider set foot in this village. And we knew it was going to be hard to get to, so we rented a couple, uh, had a couple of uh, uh, four-by-fours, quattro-by-quattros, and they had these uh, snorkel breathers on them, you know, where they can get air from way up high. And when I saw those Jeeps, I thought, no, why do they have to breathe that high up? And it wasn't long before I figured it out. We came to a river, and the river was so dang deep that the cargo in the back of those trucks were washed out. Hadn't been for that snorkel, we'd, we'd have never made it. But it was breathing way up high, you understand? And my goodness, we were scared to death. Those rivers have anacondas and all kind of stuff in them. So as stuff was floating down the river, and we had some Brazilians there that were swimming, trying to catch boxes and materials. And I'm thinking, up, oh, just let them go. <laughs> we can do without. But we had two of those four by fours, and we got through that river. And the next thing we had to traverse after that river was about, my goodness, it must have been a quarter mile sand bed. And that sand bed, I mean, it was, you can't even ride a motorcycle through it because it just, you know, it just takes you. So we figured we can get through that and we tried and we said, here's the plan. Truck number one is going to go and it's going to get all the way to the other side of the sand bed before truck number two ever starts, ever enters the sand bed. That way if truck number one gets stuck, we've still got truck number two. All right? Everybody on board? On board. Truck number one starts. You guys live in Florida. You know the one rule that you do not break when you're driving in sand. What is it? 
You don't stop. Driver number one sees something interesting on the side of the road and stops to take a closer look at it. When he stops, everybody just shudders and shivers because we know what's going to happen. As soon as he starts again, he gets stuck. Well, sure enough, he's sitting on his axles. Thank God we were wise enough to tell truck number two to wait for us at the beginning of the sand bed. Well, we turn around and look back, and somehow or another driver truck two didn't get the memo. Here he's coming. There ain't no way to get around, so we just all sitting there watching, knowing that when his front bumper touches back bumper of truck number one, truck number two is stuck as well. So here we go. We're in the middle of nowhere. You hear me? I mean nowhere with two four-wheel drives bogged down in a sand bed. So it's late in the afternoon. We're doing everything we can think of to get these trucks out, tried everything. We worked ourselves to a frazzle, and finally one of the guys that was with us played the guitar. He was our traveling worship guy. He just goes and sits down on front of truck number one and starts playing. And he starts worshiping. And there was something about that that, you know, all the rest of us that were working and trying to get the truck unstuck, we just said, we might as well go and sit down too. So we went and sat down and we started singing. And before long, we had an impromptu worship service going in that sand bed. Kind of forgot our circumstances and we were enthralled in the worship of God. Next thing you know, we started seeing things happen around us. We started seeing movement in the jungle and in the bushes. And next thing we can make out that it was people. And they'd come up and they got to the edge of the sand bed and they were looking at us real strange and, and we just kept on singing. We didn't, I mean, what else are you going to do? We didn't know if they were going to take out blow guns and shoot us and we were going to be dinner or what. So we decided if we are going to go out, we are going to go out worshiping the Lord, huh? So we just kind of didn't focus on them and just kept on worshiping. And they just kept getting closer and closer and closer. And finally there was a crowd around us of people that we didn't even know were in those parts of the woods. So when the song stopped, the guy who was the leader stepped up and he spoke in Portuguese and asked, you know, what we were doing and who we were and all this type of stuff. And we explained to him who we were and where we were going and why we were going there. But we've got a problem. And that guy, no lie, he looked around and he said, well, I think now there's enough people here to push y'all out. And we thought, never happened. Sunday got behind truck number one and there was enough Brazilians who lived in the jungle out there that we didn't even know were around pushed truck number one all the way out of the sand bed. Come back, got truck number two, pushed it all the way out of the sand bed. Now look here, I'm a rookie missionary. But you know what God taught me in that sand bed that day? He taught me, you keep it focused on me, I'll take care of everything around you. It was literally through the worship of God that we were delivered. Had we sat out there and continued to cut palm branches and try to put roots under the tires of those four-by-fours, we'd probably still... You'd find, you'd find about ten skeletons in a sand bed somewhere in Brazil today. Because it wasn't happening in our strength. But when we just sat down and started worshiping God and got enthralled and focusing upon Him and who He was through music, God attracted a crowd that literally pushed us out of the sand trap. Church, here's what I'm saying to you. I don't just work in sand traps in the jungle of Brazil. That worships inside church buildings in Bonifay, Florida. You keep it focused on God, and God takes care of the other things. 
Hey, listen to me. 90% of what's going to fall on your plate this week is little more than a distraction sent to get your focus off of Him and on your problems. And when you focus on your problems instead of on God, both of them look disproportionately out of size. Your problems will look big and God will look little. But I'm telling you, you keep the focus on Him and He takes care of everything. Hey, that's why Grace Church wants to be a sending church. Because we want to keep it focused on God. And we can't keep it focused on God if we're not a sending church. Number two, not only is Grace a sending church because the focus of missions is Godward, but Grace Church wants to be a mission, a sending church because the field of missions is global. Hey, where do missions take place? And you know, here's, here's where everybody starts. Everybody starts out thinking that missions, anything is missions that you had to travel a good distance from your home to get to, right? Hence, if we go to put a roof on somebody's house that got blew off in a hurricane in Pensacola, that's missions. <laughs> if we go to North Dakota to, 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 to help a church plan up there, that's missions. Why? Because we're a long way from the house before we got out and started doing anything. But friend, listen, missions is not defined by how far you are from the house when you do something. Missions is defined by with whom you are working. Now notice what this psalm says right here, what this psalmist says. And here's something else that I want you to underline when you have time. I want you to go through this psalm and take your same pencil and underline every time you see the word nations, every time you see the word families, every time you see the word earth, every time you see the word peoples, because all of those are mission words that describe and define who our target audience is when we get out and worship this great God of ours who's worthy to be praised. See, that's ultimately what we do. We get in this global field wherever people are found who do not have access to the gospel because that's what these words mean. You see this word in verse number 3, nations? And do you see the word families? And do you see the word peoples? Two of those words are the Hebrew word that refers directly to people who live outside the knowledge of Yahweh God. You know what we'd call those people today? That's exactly right. We'd call them unreached peoples. And you see, that's what we do in missions. We go to those folk who could not hear if they wanted to. Hey, you know there's a difference between lost people and unreached people and most folk don't get this. There are lost people in Bonifay, Florida. But there are no unreached people in Bonifay, Florida. You see the difference? Because Bonifay, Florida is a reached context. We have churches here. We have the gospel here. Do you know that people today who don't want to hear the gospel have to take very evasive action to get out from under its influence? Did you know that? I mean, you can't drive down Main Street in Bonifay, Florida without passing how many churches? I challenge you to count how many church buildings you pass on your way home today. You know what that means? That means the gospel is very firmly established here. Hey, you get on in your car and go home and you hit the scan button on your radio and you see how many gospel stations you have to hit the scan button again to get it to bypass before you get to some country music. Because <laughs> that's what you're looking for, right? <laughs> you see, the gospel is that you go out and eat at a restaurant and you go into the restroom to wash your hands, and what is normally laying around on the counter in there? 
gospel tracks. You go to a hotel and spend the night and reach over in the, in the nightstand drawer and open it, what you going to find in there? You see, if you don't want to be under the influence of the gospel and the Bible Belt of the United States, you've got to be like an ostrich and dig a hole in the sand and stick your head in it. Because it's everywhere. But these people that are described in this psalm, the goim, the nations, the peoples, this describes people who if they wanted to hear, they could not. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about it? Somebody who wants to hear and they cannot because it's not available. Enter ascending church because that's the field of missions. So, why is grace ascending church? Number one, because the focus of missions is Godward. Number two, because the field of missions is global. But number three, because the freshness of missions is gratifying. Hey, freshness, freshness, freshness. Do you know any churches that are stagnant? And it's the same old, same old. I mean, you walk in, you can smell the stagnant in the air, can't you? Because the carpet hadn't been changed since it was put in there in 1976. Huh? The pews are the same cushion. I mean, it's just, not just stagnant physically, but stagnant. Stagnant spiritually. And man, it's horrible to be there. Hey, have you ever been in that place where you're just stagnant spiritually? There's nothing coming in. There's nothing going out. But I want to tell you, here's what keeps a church fresh, just like a river. Hey, if you've got a pond and there's a river that passes through it, you know what keeps that pond fresh? The fact that there's something coming in and there's something going out. And you see, that's what ascending church is. We illustrated it last week. When Ron and Brenda were here, was it Ron and Brenda? No, it was Jeff and Diane that were joining. They were coming in, Evan and Laura Lynn going out. That's freshness, freshness, freshness. But notice here what the Bible says in verse number 1. How fresh is it? Notice what verse number 1 says. Sing to the Lord a song that y'all been singing for 400 years that's in the yellow pages of that Baptist hymnal. Is that what it says? Hey, here's what's interesting to me. Do you know when most of the hymns that we have today were composed? They were composed in the United States in what's known as the golden era of missions. It's when the United States was sending more missionaries in that's ever been sent in the history of the world. It's what's known in missiology as the golden era of missions. From the mid-1800s up until about the first 30 years of the, the 20th century. And guess why all of those hymns were being composed? There's an explosion of new worship material in the church during that time. And do you know why it is? Because missions breeds freshness. It just does. I remember when Heather and I got to the field, my first two years there, I wrote two devotional books because I've seen things about God that I've never even contemplated before. And where did I see them? On the mission field. I saw fresh aspects of God. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I saw things in the Scripture that I'd never seen before. And I had three degrees from a Southern Baptist seminary. And the Spirit filled my life with the fresh wind and knowledge of God 
through mission exposure. It's amazing what God, what God will do. Check this out. Look what he said. He said, sing to Yahweh a new song. Need I remind you this is a missionary hymn? And can I tell you that God will infuse the life of a local church with freshness that is a sending church composed of missional believers. We won't ever have to worry about it being the same old, same old. And being boring and stagnant and stomped up and stale and stuffed shirt and all of that kind of stuff. Why? Because missions keeps it real and missions keeps it fresh. Well, got to run. The field of missions is global. The focus of missions is Godward. The freshness of missions is gratifying. Man, it'll bless your soul. Was it gratifying? Jack, was it gratifying? I'm telling you, and guess what? That was just brief exposure. Wait till you have long-term exposure. And it becomes a part of our regular diet. Check out number next, and I'm through. Boy, we got through early today. That's because the nursery workers gave me a tip. <laughs> you know better than that. It's a joy to work in that nursery, ain't it, Sarah? It's fresh, ain't it? It's gratifying, ain't it? Yes, ma'am, it is. Check out number next, and I'm done. Not only is the freshness of missions gratifying, but the future of missions is glorious. Now, remember, I said that there are three stanzas. The first two stanzas give us imperative verbs. Church, listen to me. If we'll be faithful to sing, 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 and ascribe, 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 if we'll be faithful to keep the focus on God and to keep, to keep going to folk who don't have access to the gospel, not only is it gratifying, but look, our future will be glorious. Dr. John, do you know how to guarantee the existence of Grace Church in the next generation? By keeping it focused on God and continuing to be ascending church. That'll be a glorious future. Now check this out. Here's the implication. If we sing, 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 if we ascribe, scribe, scribe, then everything that's described here in this let portion, that will be our future. Look what he says. He says, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Look what else he says. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy. I mean, the psalmist has a habit of talking about the trees clapping their hands. Well, of course, trees don't have hands. They can't clap. But it just seems like all creation is in sync when the people of God are doing what the people of God ought to do and when the people of God are being what the people of God ought to be. So man, he's describing a time here of great jubilation. Why? Because the people of God have carried out their missionary responsibility and have demonstrated their missionary identity. Now check this out. I want you to see this. Notice what he did. And this is this, this kind of stuff that happens when you start thinking about missions and focusing on God. Look at verse number 13. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh, for He is coming. Now this is how astounding this is. This guy is writing and composing this psalm 
400 years before Christ came the first time. And he's not describing here his first coming. He's describing here his second coming. Do you see what his Godward focus and what his missional heart did? He leapfrogged the first coming and went all the way to the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the consummation of the Great Commission, God's people being missionary. Dr. John, I know this plays right into your eschatology. Huh? It does. But here's what he's saying. Man, he's saying that if we'll get busy doing what it is that we ought to be doing, then God will get busy as well. Now, I want you to see this. Because really, does missions and the second coming have anything in common? Friend, don't ask me to explain it. I cannot. God is greater than I. He's incomprehensible. All I can do is track Him out on the basis of what His Word says. And the second coming of Christ and the Great Commission are inextricably linked. I don't get it, but they are. And somehow or another, the Bible seems to indicate that He's not coming until we start going. And I hear so many people in stagnant, stale churches sit around and talk, Oh, Brother Richie, I just wish the Lord would come today. Well, what are you doing to prepare for that? Are, are, you trying to, are you doing anything to usher in His coming by being on mission with Him and being Godwardly focused and taking the gospel of Jesus Christ? People are, oh, well, no, we're mission-minded. We give to missions once a year. You see, that's what the Scripture seems to indicate. Now, let me show you this in a couple places. All I can do is show you what the Word says, and we can come to some conclusions maybe on our own. But check out with me 2 Peter chapter number, uh, chapter number 3. I want you to see this. 2 Peter in chapter number 3. Notice how these two are inextricably linked. Verse number 12. And, and notice Peter's talking about the consummation of the ages here. And here's, here's what he says. Since all these things in verse 11 are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, did you just pick up the word in there that is earth-shattering to me? What? What does that word hastening mean? It means to hit the fast-forward button, does it not? It means to hurry things up. So wait a minute, Peter. You mean to tell me that somehow or another in the divine economy of God and even within the scope of His sovereignty of having fixed everything by His own power and He's the only one that knows when the end is and when it's coming, He has somehow or another put us in the loop and said, if you do this, you'll speed it up. My goodness. Well, what is it that we can be involved in? Hey... Listen, is your mind blown like mine? Don't think I'm a heretic here. I'm just showing you what Scripture says. Peter said, looking forward to and hastening the coming day of God. It's what the psalmist described in Psalm 96, 400 years before the first coming. 
And now here he is saying, you guys hasten this. Hey, I don't know about you, but listen, 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 listen. I, I mean, I, Maranatha, right? Look around at the world today and even so come Lord Jesus right now. Wouldn't hurt my feelings one bit if he interrupted my message with the sound and tooting of the trumpet of Gabriel and the eastern sky breaking open, huh? I mean, come Lord Jesus. But if that's what we want, that glorious day, when He comes and He's revealed in His true deified nature, then friend, there's something that we got to get, get doing. Looking forward to and hastening that great glorious day. Now, are you with me? Let me show you what I think it is that we can do. Matthew chapter number 24. Matthew chapter number 24. If God has somehow or another put His people within the divine economy of determining epics and seasons and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, a glorious future. Notice what Jesus said. And John... Uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That word nations, the ethnic, those who live outside the influence of the gospel, those who've never heard, the unreached people group. There are still today over 4,000 people groups unreached with more than 100,000 in their population base. And the church is busy sitting over here calling going to the Bahamas and to the Bahamian Islands to do backyard Bible clubs, missions. God help our soul. Get it to the nations, those who do not have access to it. Look what Jesus said. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then, what? Then the end will come. Looking forward to and hastening. Pastor Richard, could Jesus come at any moment? I believe that. I think the New Testament teaches that. You know why? Because in His sovereignty, maybe He looks at unreached people groups different than we do. I don't know. Maybe the last one whom He wants to hear the gospel is in the process of hearing now. I don't know. But just knowing His missionary heart and knowing there are 4,000 left out there who have not heard tells me that if we want to see this great day coming, then by golly, we better, be, we better get going to those 4,000. Are you with me? It's a glorious future. He's talking about His coming. And do you know this future that He talks about right here? Man, we talk a lot about God's preferable future for our lives. This is the most preferred future that we could ever ask for. Is it not? I mean the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory. And what is it that ushers that in? I'm telling you, it's obedience to the Great Commission. For this gospel shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. You know, I can just imagine as a missionary that there is some group out there hidden in a remote corner of this planet that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And somehow or another, God's watching that people group. And one day, lo and behold, a missionary 
who's been sent by a local church is going to target unknowingly that particular people group. And he is going to unknowingly stumble into that people group with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, it's almost as if God has put a tripwire at the gate of that city and that village. And when that missionary trips that tripwire, by golly, the eastern sky is going to erupt because that's it. That's the last one. There's nothing else to be done. And now Gabriel's going to start blowing. And God's people are going to start going. My goodness, Grace Church, what would it be like to be that missionary who walks in there and gets the gospel to the last one and sets the second coming into motion? Grace Church, what would it be like to be the church that sent that missionary into that last group that ushered in our glorious future? That's why grace wants to be ascending church because God's got a future for us that's glorious. Hey, I've got a pastor friend that said this one day. He said it off the top of his head. I don't think he knew how profound it was when he said this. He said, the life that you've always wanted lies hidden in the mission that you've always dreaded. Because most folk are just like Jack, just like Richie. God, I'll do anything. Just don't send me to the mission field. God, I'll do anything you want to here. Just don't send me to Africa. You identify that thing that you have dreaded the most, and that's probably where you're going to find the life that you've always wanted in Christ, where your life is going to be inundated with the fresh knowledge and revelation of God that comes to us through His Word. Your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to experience fresh things. You're going to be so filled. You're going to be so gratified. And you're going to be walking into a future that is unbelievably glorious. That's why Grace Church is ascending church. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for being so great, so holy, so majestic, so glorious, so awesome that we would be in great sin to try to contain you right here for ourselves and to ourselves. God, would you help us become so infatuated with who you are that it just naturally forces us out into this global field, collecting worshipers unto the great God who's worthy to be praised from all people groups, especially those who've never heard, so that one day around the throne we're going to see reality come into play when there's a great multitude from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people worshiping you through all eternity. I pray for those who are here today that, God, you've been speaking to them about becoming more missional. God, today, could you drive home in their heart the truth of your word. We never give more than we receive back. I pray for those who are here today that you've been speaking to about church membership and today you've let them see why Grace Church is the church for them. God, whatever you've done, today may we start walking by obedience one step at a time. So God, would you be pleased in our response? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Dr. John Wilson is going to be right here at the front.
calling dollars at the other side. If God's spoken to you and there's a step of obedience you need to take, in Jesus' name, won't you trust Him and be obedient?